All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, down through chapter 10, verse 15. And in this recording, what we begin is the second main teaching block in Matthew's Gospel. If you recall, in the backstory to Matthew, we talked about how Matthew organizes his Gospel really around two primary organizing principles, a geographical movement towards Jerusalem and the cross, and five large teaching blocks that all end with the same sort of refrain, when Jesus had finished saying these things. So the first of those teaching blocks was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And now we get the second one of those being set up here at the end of chapter 9 and then entering into chapter 10. And the way this section is set up at the end of chapter 9 is like this. Jesus has been doing all these miracles. He's been traveling. He's been preaching and teaching and then performing these miracles of healing and casting out demons and raising the dead. And Jesus sees how great the human need is. And then he shares his authority with the 12 and he sends them out to extend his ministry, helping the needy. And so this teaching block that shows up in chapter 10 is thus set into the context of mission, of extending the reach of the kingdom of heaven through the 12 apostles. And so many scholars actually refer to this teaching block as teaching related to mission. And we're going to look at this uh, teaching block in three different parts. The one will start here at 935 through 1015, where Jesus sends out the 12 to the villages of Israel. Then the second part we'll look at is verses 16 through 23, where Jesus prepares them actually for a wider ministry, even among the Gentiles in the future. And then the third part will be 1024 through 42, where Jesus trains the 12 on the traits and the character they need for this ongoing work of mission and ministry. Now, the original audience of this teaching that we'll see in chapter 10 is the 12. It's preparing the 12 for ministry and mission. And we have to remember this, or we can very easily misapply this text. In fact, even the apostles themselves in the book of Acts don't apply the material that Jesus gives them here in chapter 10. They don't apply it literally and exactly as it's recorded here. And so we're going to need to slow down and meditate on the teaching that Jesus gives in chapter 10. And we're going to need to think through the truths of that teaching and figure out, okay, how then does it apply beyond the original context to ministry and mission today? It presents, as one scholar says, an initial stage of mission that later kind of expands and adapts and changes after the resurrection. And so we're going to have to give some thought to how we actually apply that today. And I'll I'll share some thoughts on that uh, at the end of this recording before we wrap things up. So let's jump in to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 1015. And the focus here is on Jesus sending out the 12 to the villages of Israel. So we begin in chapter 9, verse 35, with another general description of Jesus' ongoing ministry that sets the stage for what's to follow. So verse 35 says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. 
Uh, Notice once again the way Matthew just sort of generally summarizes Jesus' ministry. He's proclaiming and he's healing. What is he proclaiming? Well, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That is, gospel means good news. It's an announcement about news. Something big is happening. So he's proclaiming the news that God's kingdom is now arriving through Jesus and his ministry. So he's proclaiming that and he's healing. He's healing people of various kinds or every kind of disease and sickness. And Jesus is doing this in all the cities and villages of Galilee. That's the idea. He's an itinerant rabbi traveling through towns like Magdala or Gamla or Bethsaida. He's doing that all throughout Galilee and he's proclaiming and healing. Matthew then does something interesting. He actually describes Jesus' reaction to interacting with all these people from all these towns. Look at verse 36. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, felt compassion for them. This is Jesus' reaction. He sees these crowds. He's been ministering to them. And Matthew tells us he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So, On one hand, he tells us about the people, that they were distressed and downcast. And these two words really are significant. They describe people in a very kind of sorry situation, a bad situation. The word distressed literally actually was originally used of skinning an animal. Uh, But then it came to be extended to describe the state of being troubled, being picked apart, being rubbed raw by life. That's what life has done to them. These people are rubbed raw by it. They're distressed. And then they're downcast. They're beat down, laid out uh, by the hardships of life. But notice Matthew also tells us that uh, they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, That description, sheep without a shepherd, in some ways is a stinging indictment on the leaders of Israel. You have all these religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes and various religious leaders, and guess what their job was supposed to be? Their job was to shepherd the people. In fact, this is one of the ways the leaders of Israel are described in the Old Testament. They're described as shepherds. One well-known passage is Ezekiel 34, where God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the quote-unquote, shepherds of Israel. Why? Because they only take care of themselves and not the flock. And so here Jesus sees the state the people are in, and he sees that the late leaders are actually failing to help them and to care for them and to shepherd them appropriately, and he feels compassion for them. And so Jesus says, verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Look at all these people. Look at all their needs. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest. Notice that. Plead eagerly. Plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus uses here familiar imagery, farming and harvest, something they would have all been familiar with. When it's harvest time, you got to get those crops in now so they don't go bad. So then we got to hire extra workers for the harvest. And so taking that imagery, Jesus says that people are ready to come into God's kingdom. There just needs to be more workers for the work of bringing them in. And so plead with the Lord of the harvest, that is God himself, plead with him to send out workers. Well, that statement then leads immediately into Jesus appointing the 12 
and sending them out because he's going to send them out as workers into the harvest to carry on and extend his ministry. And so we pick up in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Notice how that echoes what was just said about Jesus. He was healing every disease and sickness. Well, now he's giving that authority to the 12 disciples so that they can do that. When we look at back even further, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, that showed us Jesus' authority by showing snapshots of Jesus casting out demons, healing diseases. Well, now he actually shares that authority with the 12. They're going to carry on some of the very same works of power and authority that Jesus himself has been doing. And then what Matthew does is he names the 12. Look at verse 2. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Before we look at the names, we have to hear what Matthew just did. In 10.1, they were Jesus' 12 disciples. In 10.2, they're the 12 apostles. That's significant. The word disciple applies to all followers of Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. In fact, if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. That's the way the New Testament thinks about that. A disciple is somebody who has attached themselves to Jesus in order to become like Jesus. That's a disciple, and that applies to all Christians. So they were his 12 disciples, but now he's going to give them the names, and he calls them 12 apostles. And an apostle is more specific than the word disciple. An apostle, that word refers to an official representative, one sent to represent another person by carrying their authority. And so these particular 12 disciples, which is the big category, are also apostles and thus unique leaders in Jesus' kingdom who bear Jesus' very own kingdom authority. So with that, Matthew lists off the names. He says, the first, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. We know from earlier in Matthew that Simon and Andrew, James and John, they were all fishermen, and they actually were in sort of a fishing cooperative together. They worked together in a fishing business, but then they were called by Jesus to follow him. So we have those four. Then we have Philip and Bartholomew. We have Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, the one who actually is writing these, this very book that we're reading. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, a couple observations on these names. Notice that the names are all arranged in pairs. Uh, Simon and Andrew, James and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew. They're all arranged in pairs. There's a good chance, don't know for sure, but there's a good chance that this likely reflects what Mark tells us. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, um, Mark tells us that Jesus sent them out in pairs. So our guess would be that these are the pairs that go out together. Simon and Andrew, their one pair go out together. James and John, they go out together. Philip and Bartholomew, together. Thomas and Matthew, together. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, together. And Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, they're sent out together. That's probably why they're arranged in pairs. Besides the, just the names themselves, one other detail to point out is this. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, the 12 disciples. Then in 10.2, the 12 apostles. And finally, after the list in 10.5, we get the 12 Jesus sends out. Matthew doesn't want us to miss the number 12. 
And we need to recall the significance of Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God and choosing not five, not six, not ten, but twelve apostles. That's very significant in the original context. Why is that? Well, because the nation of Israel began with twelve patriarchs and twelve tribes. And so the number twelve carries weight in the Jewish understanding of their history and their identity. And thus, appointing twelve is not random or arbitrary. It's Jesus' way of saying that they are like twelve heads of a renewed Israel, and Jesus is going to send them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, Matthew 19.28 actually makes that explicit, where Jesus tells the twelve that they're going to sit on twelve thrones ruling over or judging the twelve tribes of Israel in the world to come. And so these 12 are given the very same kind of authority as Jesus, and they're going to extend his ministry. And so verse 5 begins Jesus' instructions to them as they are sent out to a people that are like sheep without a shepherd. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, and that reminds us that what's said in chapter 10, this big teaching block, first and foremost is, for the 12 in that context. And so he says to them, don't go on a road to the Gentiles. Do not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so as part of their discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus, he now sends them out for a short period of time to carry on the mission of proclaiming and healing to Israel specifically. Notice, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Now, all that's going to change in the future. In fact, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to send them out to all the nations. And the word for nations there in Matthew 28 and the word for Gentile here in verse 5, same word, Gentiles, nations. And so this is all going to shift and change after Jesus' resurrection. But here he wants them to focus on Jewish communities. Go to those towns. And then he says in verse 7, As you go, preach, saying... The kingdom of heaven has come near, which is the very same message that Jesus himself preached, right? As a summary of Jesus' message, that's what he preached. They're doing the same thing. They're carrying on Jesus' kingdom work. And so they're participating in his ministry by extending it into other places because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Not only are they going to proclaim like uh, Jesus did, they're also going to heal like Jesus did. So look at verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those with leprosy, cast out demons. These are the very kinds of works of authority and power that Jesus has been doing and that the 12 themselves have watched Jesus do. Now they're going to do them themselves. Jesus says to them, freely you have received, freely give. That is, having freely received the blessings of the kingdom themselves, it's time for them to share those blessings with others. You've been a part of his ministry. You've seen it. You've experienced it. and You've received the blessings of it. So now freely give those blessings to others. But this is actually qualified in the very next sentence. Giving freely doesn't mean not taking support. This is interesting. Look at verse 9. He says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Like, I'm going to send you out. Don't go get, you know, a a money bag and store up some money to take with you on this trip. Uh, Or a bag for your journey. Or even two tunics. Or two sandals. Or a staff. For the worker is deserving of his his support. So, 
uh, I'm going to send you out, but I don't want you to go, you know, pack a bag, you know, pack your suitcase, get everything else. No, I want you to travel light. Don't take a bunch of extra supplies. Why? And the reason Jesus gives is because the worker is worthy or deserving of his support, of being cared for. Paul, the apostle, actually quotes this line from this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and applies it to elders who give themselves to teaching and preaching. And he says, look, um, he quotes an Old Testament passage and he quotes this passage and he says the worker is worthy of support. So elders who give themselves to teaching and preaching, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, um, they need to be taken care of by those to whom they teach or preach. We'll reflect on that a little bit more at the end of this and what that teaches us maybe about some of the application questions this text embodies. But for now, Jesus sends out the 12, tells them he wants them to travel light, no extra stuff. They should be taken care of by the the towns they go to. And so here's his instructions for how that should come about. Look at verse 11. Whatever city or village you enter into, he says, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. And so the idea is you enter into a city and you try to find a person who is hospitable and open to your teaching. That's what the idea of worthy means here. It doesn't necessarily mean like super high virtue. It means one who responds positively to them and the message of the kingdom. And so if somebody responds positively to them and the message of the kingdom, stay there. Let them take care of you while you're in that city carrying on some ministry. How do you inquire and figure out who's worthy? Well, here's what Jesus says in verses 12 and 13. He says, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. The standard Jewish greeting is shalom. So shalom to the house. And if the house is worthy, see that your blessing of peace comes upon it. Uh, The idea is your shalom. You've pronounced shalom. If these people are worthy, then your peace settles upon the house. Shalom to the house, harmony on the household. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Take back your greeting. Take back your shalom. And then Jesus actually amplifies that in verse 14 by saying, And whoever does not receive you, nor listen to your words, as you leave that house or that city. So you enter into a house or you enter into a city and those people reject you and they turn against you. What Jesus says is shake the dust off of your feet, which is supposed to be a kind of a symbolic prophetic action against them. It's a sign against them. In fact, often when Jews of the day would travel into foreign lands, to Gentile lands, and then they would return back to Israel, this is what they would do before they entered Israel. They would get rid of that nasty old Gentile dust by shaking off their sandals. So Jesus is essentially saying, take that same action, and in doing so, you will communicate to them that that they are in danger. They're like now outsiders, outside of the kingdom, outside of the blessing of God's kingdom and the shalom that it brings. And Jesus actually says, truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that city. In other words, rejecting the message of the kingdom is worse than what Sodom and Gomorrah did because the kingdom now is coming into the world, bringing the very blessing of God. If you reject that, now you stand on the outside of it looking in and that's worse than what Sodom and Gomorrah did. All right, so that's the first little chunk of instructions that Jesus gives to the 12 about their mission. You can see here that it focuses on Uh, their mission specifically to the Jewish towns and villages in and around Galilee. Before we leave it, let me just offer some thoughts and reflections on this question of 
application or the hermeneutical question, if you want the fancy word, like how do these words come across into our world? That's the application or the hermeneutical question. What I mean is this, since these words are initially and primarily Jesus' words commissioning the 12 for a very specific mission during Jesus' earthly ministry, how do these words apply to us and to the church today? Or do they not apply to us today? Um, this question comes into sharper focus in the rest of the teaching block. As though as we continue through chapter 10, this question actually comes into sharper focus for us because Jesus' words and what follows includes clearly some of this initial mission of the 12, but it clearly goes beyond it to future ministry and mission um, to even the Gentiles. So the question then becomes, well, what applies only to the 12 in Galilee? What applies to the 12 only, but after Jesus' resurrection? What applies to missionaries and pastors and all Christians throughout church history? These kinds of questions are difficult, and that's some of the things that makes reading the Bible hard and applying the Bible hard, but they're, even though some places maybe they're more pronounced, they're really part of all of our Bible reading, because we're not the original audience for any passage of Scripture. The Bible may have been written for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. It's God's Word for us to instruct us in who God is and God's values and God's ways and God's plans and promises. So it's God's word for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. And when we're dealing with, say, a narrative text like this one, where it tells a story, right? It's a narrative text. Well, we're not the ones that are actually experiencing the original events. And so you got sort of the original events. Then you have the, the reason the author has included those original events in the way that he's included them. So how do we move from the original setting to the message for the church today? That's the hermeneutical question, the application question. And in brief, such a move in a text like this one here in chapter 10 works like this. You have the original message, then you have sort of like the theological teaching or some of the theological principles embodied very specifically in that original message. So the original message may be wearing the language and dress and expression of the original audience, but it still is maybe like an original application in their context. So you have the original message and then the theological teaching or principles, and then you have the ongoing message or application in different contexts. So there are things here in Matthew 10 uh, that are clearly limited to that time. For example, don't go to the Gentiles. Jesus tells them that. Don't go to the Samaritans. Jesus tells them that. And yet in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus is actually going to send them to the Gentiles, to the nations. We'll see in Acts chapter 8 that they go to the Samaritans, right? So there are some things that are clearly limited to the original mission of the 12 in Galilee during Jesus' earthly ministry. There are also some things where the details maybe likely don't fit but the underlying theological rationale um, might be instructive. Like, for example, probably maybe the specifics of the two tunics and the staff don't fit, but we can learn from that. Like Travel light, particularly when you're on mission. Don't get too attached to stuff. And remember that you're supposed to be supported by the people that you're serving. Or shaking off the dust of the feet. That was a symbolic action that communicated something. Is there a way to maybe uh, learn from that, meditate on that, and learn some things from that? Uh, 
And so that's what we want to do. We'd want to meditate on those places and say, okay, what's the theological message? Does the rest of Scripture, especially the New Testament, teach the same truth? If so, in what way? And how does that therefore instruct us for ministry and mission today? Uh, for example, uh, the worker is worthy of his support. Well, since we see the Apostle Paul apply that to elders in Ephesus uh, 30 years after this event, um, it shows us that, okay, here's one way to potentially apply this. Paul saw this as a legitimate application of these words of Jesus. And so we can learn from that, uh, that here's a whole new context in a whole new situation where this theological truth uh, just might pertain. So we have to be careful we just can't take the exact words, bring them straight across into our world wholesale as is. Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing here for us to instruct us on maybe some of Jesus' value system for the sake of ministry and mission. And this kind of practice is actually something we do, or at least we ought to do, with all of Scripture. We, we just need to be aware of what we're doing so we can be very intentional thoughtful and responsible in how we do it. We have to move carefully from the original setting and the original application and the original context uh, down through the theological teaching and message and purpose of the text into our world today. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that exists only because of people who have a kingdom vision and a generous heart. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this work. And if you have been blessed or impacted by this ministry in any way, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters by going to listenerscommentary.com clicking the Give button, and setting up either a one-time or recurring monthly donation right there. Thanks a ton in advance for your support.